a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. It's true, I spend my days and many of my nights eagerly shoveling truth and light every direction. It's up to you, though, to catch it, so I hope your, your reflexes are nimble. I'm happy to welcome Eric Peters from epautos.com back to the show. Eric, great to have you on board. Well, ditto, Brian, and I hope your arms aren't tired from shoveling all the truth. <laughs> as, as you and I were talking before we jumped on the air, it's a target-rich environment today. There is so much going on, and I guess since the Supreme Court is now on a lot of people's minds, let's start there. I'd like to get yeah. your reaction to a leaked memorandum which came out yesterday that says, yeah. it looks like Roe v. Wade is about to be overturned. Yeah, apparently Politico got a hold of a memorandum, I guess, or a preliminary opinion of where the court is going with regard to this case, I think it's in Mississippi that would determine whether the principle uh, that is underlying Roe versus Wade would be upheld or not. And apparently it's not going to be upheld. So, of course, this is already triggering all of the, the people on the left uh, into keening outrage along the lines of when the Orange Man was elected back in 2016. But what's interesting to me is that it's more of a, a technical legalistic question that they're discussing rather than the fundamental question. Uh, essentially, as I understand the opinion, they're simply deciding whether the federal government has the constitutional authority to decree a, a national policy with regard to abortion. Not the, you know, the, the fundamental question is, are we dealing with a life or not? You know, are we dealing with the termination of a, of a human being or not? Nobody wants to touch that, apparently. So uh, we're not allowed to talk about that either. And that, that helps them to define the issue in a way um, that completely uh, gets by the, the pertinent issue. You know, we say frame it in terms of, oh, it's just women's health care. It's just a matter of choice. So there's that. But the one thing I am encouraged about is that at least at the federal level, this might establish a precedent that the federal government may not have the constitutional authority to tell you that you have to have a jab, for instance, or wear a mask. So that's one of the good things that I, I take from this. That's And actually, one of the things that I saw was was excerpted, excerpted from this, um, uh, I guess this is a, I don't know what you would call it. This is the decision being written by Antonin, not Antonin, it is, is it Scalia? Uh, uh, yeah. Okay, so Scalia, uh, it said something so, yeah. something to the effect of um, this This is not, basically he says abortion is not mentioned in the, in the right. Constitution. So if I'm understanding this correctly, this would kick it back to the states, which it was prior to yeah. Roe v. Wade. Some states are going to be yeah. very rapidly pro-abortion. Some states are going to be very rapidly anti-abortion or pro-life. And I think that's how it should be. But, uh, yeah. man, I, I'm, I'm just wondering how long before somebody points out the logic here, if this, if this in fact, overturns Roe v. Wade, wouldn't that same logic apply to the Second Amendment? Could we say goodbye yeah. NFA 34 and Gun Control Act of 68? Very possibly. You know, it, of course, the, uh, the Byzantine lengths to which they parse the law leave these questions uh, open to much debate. You never know what they're going to pull out of their hat. Essentially, they can pull anything out of their hat that they want to. And somehow, Chief Justice Roberts found it constitutional for the federal government to tell you that you have to buy health insurance, and that's not in the Constitution anywhere either. Um, you know, but, so I wouldn't necessarily count your chickens before they're hatched. What I think is most interesting about this, it's just another parting of the ways, a cleaving of this country into two camps that um, have irreconcilable um, values and views. 
on fundamental questions. As you say, certain states are going to pass laws uh, that rightly, in my view, say this is a, you know, this is an immoral, horrible thing. It's not, uh, you know, it's not about a woman's right to choose. It's about ending life. And this is not acceptable to us for the same reason it's not acceptable to euthanize an old person or somebody who's retarded or has some other affliction. It's just simply an immoral thing. And it's not a matter of choice. You know, we don't say, you know, I'm pro-choice as regards theft or murder. We define these things for what they are, and we punish those who commit them. Um, but on the other side, you know, there are people who are absolutely rapidly, diametrically opposed to that idea and would even support infanticide. That's how, I mean, actual literal infanticide of born babies after the fact. And you can't come to a meeting of the minds on that. So I think it's just another example of how we're gradually separating into two different societies. And I don't know how ultimately that's going to pan out, but I do see that trend developing. I applaud you, too, for, for zeroing in on what really is the crux of the matter versus, you know, the legal minutia that uh, that people mm-hmm. are straining at. Um, I think it was Joseph Sobrand years ago who pointed out that, uh, you know, there was a time where the focus on the discussion of abortion was on the innocent life that was at stake. But it was mm-hmm. successfully shifted over time to, no, 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 this is about the reproductive rights of the woman. And cool. once once that innocent life was crowded, you know, uh, not just to the back burner, but basically off the stove, um, that's all it became about. It was only discussable within the context of the woman's right to choose or not. Yeah, the left is very adroit at framing issues by manipulation of language. If you can successfully do that, if you can get people to talk about choice, you know, rather than murder, uh, it's very easy to make a compelling argument on a superficial level. Of course, we favor people's right to choose. I mean, we're liberty-minded people, but that's not the issue, is it? You know, it's, it's, it's of a piece with so many other things, and I harp on this a lot, uh, the importance of being very clear about what you're saying, about defining the terms of a discussion before you have the discussion, because you cannot have a coherent, intelligent discussion unless the terms are defined prior to the discussion. Let's let's take a moment to talk a little bit about uh, the free speech issue as well, since now mm-hmm. uh, we learned that over the last few months, the Department of Homeland Security has been pulling together uh, a misinformation ministry or a ministry of truth. And okay. it, it didn't flare into existence last week. It was just officially acknowledged last week. Yeah. What's your reaction to the creation of this new bureaucracy? Well, I, I'm not surprised by it. First of all, you know, given the, the general trend of the authoritarians in this country, I fully expected something like that uh, to happen. Um, and it's both alarming and farcical at the same time. You have an, a literal clown, I forgot this woman's name, Jansky or something like that, that they brought forward and, and, and uh, appointed as the head of this new Ministry of Truth, which once again is all about framing language and about suppressing speech uh, by not allowing certain terms to be used. But again, it's comical. You, know, you, you and I are old enough to remember when we, we go watch James Bond movies, for example, and they have the, the villains with their ridiculously attired evil secret policemen and henchmen and stuff like oh, that. Yeah. And that's what we've got. You know, that's what these people are. And they don't even realize how ridiculous they look, you know, that they're so afraid of having a discussion, that they're so uh, that they're so terrified of the weakness of their own arguments that they have to resort to this sort of a thing. Uh, so I think it's a salutary thing, once again, in that it's, it shows their fear and it shows their weakness. I think if they were very confident about uh, about their arguments, they'd stand on them and they'd defend them. But since they can't, they have to resort to this sort of thing. Yep. It's and and I'm I'm telling people, starting with myself and then anybody in my immediate circle, 
if if you've ever felt like you know at some point we're going to have to get serious about free speech, that's now is the point. This this is the time because that uh, that noose is tightening. It's it's incremental, but uh, this is a major step towards criminalizing certain ideas, thoughts, and expressions of those ideas or thoughts, and and it will be used to punish dissent. It will, but you know they're further delegitimizing themselves. And if we have to get to the point of having a kind of underground or they, they, they use this word in the old Soviet Union, a Santa's Dad press, you know, where uh, people would run off mimeograph uh, uh, little broadsheets that they would distribute amongst themselves, so be it. You know, it's gotten to the point where almost everybody understands that the media, in Airfingers quotes, uh, is, is completely unreliable, is compromised, that it shills for the government, that it shills for the corporations that pay all the advertising. And that essentially nothing that they say should be taken at face value and should be questioned. And I think that's good for the liberty movement. It's finally waking people up to the realization that they have an obligation to practice due diligence and to look into things for themselves rather than waiting for some authority figure to tell them what to think. Yep. And I think this is also a prime opportunity for people to put into action claiming and using their rights. Um, You know, the, the way you lose your rights is by not using them. They'll, they'll atrophy just Absolutely. like your muscles will atrophy. So, you know, that doesn't mean you have to be out there protesting with banners and marching in the streets and with a bullhorn, but you got to exercise that right to free speech and, and do it proudly and do it without apology. Absolutely. And by the way, it'll be interesting to see how this business with Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter goes and whether he did that just simply to monetize it and uh, to use it as another vehicle to uh, sluice money into his pocket or if it will indeed be a free speech platform, I have my concerns going both ways. He's made noises about, for example, identifying people. You know, so in other words, it sounds like you're not going to be able to tweet. God, I hate that term. It's ridiculous for a grown man to talk about tweeting. <laughs> um, but, but anyway, uh, you know, in other words, you won't be able to do it anonymously. Uh, you'll have to be vetted and identified somehow. And you know, that alarms me. I don't like the idea. You know, I'm a public person. You're a public person. That's fine. But for average people who may have something to lose, for example, at work, if they were to put forward an opinion that their employer might find politically incorrect or heretical and could cost them their job, that's a big deal. So it's yeah. a way for them to suppress and to, you know, to keep, keep people fearful of uh, zipping their lips so that they don't uh, do something that could end up resulting in the loss of job, promotion, or cause problems for their kids and their families and so on. But we'll have to wait and see how it all pans out. All right, we are talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. I've got to take a very quick break here, pay a couple of bills. When we come back... We're going to check in with the department of I told you so. You're going to love this story. Stay with us. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. We're talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, I saw a very interesting article on your website called uh, The Department of I Told You So. And uh, <laughs> right. I'm going to let you go ahead and set the stage for us about uh, about the, the subject at hand. Yeah, sure. There was a very interesting article uh, that CNN posted the other day, and it was interesting for what it didn't say. What it did say was, that those naughty, naughty uh, Ruskies were having problems with the John Deere equipment, tractors and harvesters and so on, 
that they've acquired as a result of the war in Ukraine and which John Deere, to punish those pesky Russies, had remotely disabled, you know, rendering them useless. And the article went on and on about that, but it said absolutely nothing about what's implied by that. And you and I have talked about this before, these connected vehicles, including farm equipment, uh, that you think are yours. After all, the title's in your name and you paid for the thing. But nonetheless, it's controlled by software that's controlled remotely by the company that allegedly sold you this thing and which, at their whim, they can decide to turn off. If they can do it to the Ruskies uh, over in Ukraine, they can do it to a farmer in Iowa, too. Yeah, you know, connecting the dots... I, I don't I know that for some people this sounds conspiratorial, but there have been an unusually large number of food processing facilities damaged by fire or explosions or other, you know, mishaps and having to be shut down. There's constrictions on the shipping of fertilizer. There's, you know, of course the increased cost of oil and all the lubricants and everything that go into keeping farm machinery running. I'm sure getting the impression that someone somewhere is putting the squeeze on our food supply lines. Sure. And I think the take home point here is that they have the power to do it uh, in terms of being able to manipulate the function operation of these connected vehicles. And it's not just the John Deere tractors. It's pretty much all the modern cars, too, that have the same connectivity uh, that can be shut off remotely. You know, uh, Tesla, for example, is another thing CNN didn't mention. There was a, a little blurb that popped up a couple of weeks ago where it was suggested, hey, I know how we can punish those Ruskies. We can shut off, have Tesla shut off all of the Tesla vehicles in Russia. And that just disappeared down the memory hole. Again, I think because of the implication. Uh, you know, if people thought about it a little bit, they realized that Tesla and all these other cars could be controlled so easily in a way that was simply impossible before cars got connected, where they'd have to physically, uh, you know, stop you from driving the car. Whereas now they can just send out a signal telling your vehicle not to operate. You know, the computer shuts down the fuel system or it turns off the battery if it's an electric car, whatever it happens to be, they have that technology. And to think that they're not going to use it at some point in the future, I think is almost childishly naive. No, I, I agree. It's it's really concerning to see that, uh, you know, especially since we know corporate America, for the most part, is willing to go along. There, there's no place so mm-hmm. far that I've seen they're willing to draw the line and say, hey, enough government, you can't order us to do this. Well, and because they have gotten in bed with government and they see that as the future of their profitability, uh, particularly with regard to vehicles, what they want most of all now is not to sell you a car and then for uh, you to own the vehicle for as long as you want to own it and be free of debt. What they want is to sell you access to the vehicle, the use of the vehicle. This is the business model that was pioneered by Microsoft more than anyone else, where uh, instead of buying the software package like Adobe, let's say if you're a graphic designer, you pay a license, you know, you pay a fee to license the software and then you must continue to pay that fee in order to have the license up to date in order to use the software. And that's how it's going to go with cars if they get their way. You're simply going to pay endlessly for access to or the use of a vehicle, but fundamentally they will own and control it. And they will also buy this mechanism and prevent people from accumulating capital. You know, when you buy a car and you pay for it, all of a sudden you have a car and you don't have a car payment, right? So if you're prudent, you can put aside some of the money that you might otherwise have had to put for that payment and accumulate capital and then have money to do other things with it. But if life becomes a financial treadmill where essentially you just have to get up and slave away every day just to pay your monthly nut for all of the things that you're renting and licensing and using, you can never accrue capital. And that's, I think, what they mean by that WEF slogan about how in the future you'll own nothing and they'll own everything and be very happy. 
Yeah, I'm already not happy. So <laughs> right. they've got an uphill battle against them if they're going to try and win me over to the idea that eating bugs and surrendering everything that I've worked for is sure. is going to make me happy. Sure. I think a lot of people feel the same way. And I think we're rapidly approaching some sort of an inflection point because awareness is dawning. Uh, you know, not just on a small cohort of weirdos like you and I and the people who listen to our shows. Um, but the general public is beginning to realize that the government and these corporations are not operating in good faith. They're not, not operating in our interests as they see them in a benevolent kind of paternalistic way, that they're overtly malignant. And what they're trying to do uh, is impose some kind of a technocratic authoritarian regime where we have essentially no latitude, no flexibility. We simply do what we're told or else they pull the plug on our, our, you know, everything that makes life possible, transportation, food, uh, you name it. Yep. It, it certainly makes all of those conversations we've had about self-reliance, you know, keeping some chickens, growing more yep. of your own food. It's starting to make a whole lot more sense. And probably six months from now, I think a lot of people will start to see the light. I hope most of them will have taken some steps by then to, to better their situation. Yeah, I hope they take it sooner rather than later, particularly now that it's spring and this is a very good time to do it. Um, parenthetically, one thing that I have been doing, and I do this every year regardless, but I bring it up because I think it's, um, I think it's a useful suggestion. I, you know, I chop down some trees, I split wood so that I have firewood. I have a wood-burning stove, and that will provide heat for me uh, and the ability to cook. Uh, in the event that I can't get natural gas to run my propane heater, our propane, I should say propane for my propane heater and the electrical grid goes down and you can't use uh, the heat pumps and so on. You know, for people who have the ability to burn wood, uh, whether it's in a wood stove or just a fireplace, I think it's really a smart idea right now uh, to store up uh, a sufficiency of wood to get you through next winter just in case. Here, here. One final note I want to touch on in the last, uh, last couple minutes that we have here. Uh, your article, Leah and the Electric Car. Let's yeah. let's let's touch on this. We're talking, of course, about Leah Thomas, the uh, uh, transgender yep. swimmer who is just smashing the women's swimming records. Huh? Go figure. Yeah. How how does yeah, this relate to electric the, cars? The man competing against women again. I think it's very important uh, to be very clear about what we're talking what we're talking about. So what we're talking about here is re- rely, uh, reality denial when it comes to Leah, and it's also true with electric cars. Uh, they've been around for 120 years. They still have the same problem that they had 120 years ago. Problems plural meaning they cost more, they don't go as far, uh, they limit you because of the recharge times. That's the same problem. Well, rather than accept these realities, what they want to do now is uh, not only reinvigorate the, the electric car subsidy, you know about this, we've talked about it, that uh, gave everybody who bought an electric car a $7,500 tax kickback. They want to bring that up to $12,500. Uh, and my question is, well, at what point do they pull the plug, not just from the wall outlet, but from our wallets? and force us to continue to subsidize these failed products that can't compete on their own and that have to have an artificial advantage, just like Leah has the artificial advantage of being a man, uh, being allowed to compete with women. Yeah, it's, uh, well, if you want to, if you want to stay tethered to the reality, I guess the only thing I can say is you're going to have to work at it because there's a lot arrayed against you to try to keep you from reality. There is, but you know, it's really quite simple. I think uh, what you need to do, what I do when engaging somebody in the discussion is just to be very clear about what we're talking about. You know, if they make a statement, then uh, if there's anything about the words they use that are unclear, ask them to define exactly what they mean before uh, participating in a debate on their terms. That's why, for example, I don't talk about 
whether Leah is a transgender swimmer and has uh, the right to compete uh, with, with the women. I, I point out that whatever she, whatever he wants to uh, identify as is fine. It doesn't change the reality, uh, the objective reality, that he's a guy. He's a dude. He was born a male. He is a male. And whatever he wants to believe he is or identifies as does not change the biological reality of his sex. And period. That's the end of it. And if his feelings are hurt, well, I'm very sorry. You know, sometimes reality bites. Yep. Yep. Reality is everything that remains when you wish it were otherwise. And unfortunately, that applies <laughs> exactly. to all of us. <laughs> yep. Eric, yeah, we're, you know, reality is the basis of wrong thinking. And we need to get back to that. Amen. And once we do, I think we'll recover sanity. No, I, I appre- that's that's a fine note to end our discussion on today. Mm-hmm. Again, we're talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Great to catch up with you as always, my friend. I feel like you, your conversations are more of a reality supplement than a lot of other stuff in my life. So thank you for that. Well, I'm happy to oblige and the same in reply. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I am so happy to bring my friend Spencer Worthington aboard. Spencer is one of our sponsors with HSLAmmo.com. Spencer, great to get you back on the program. It's been a while. Always a pleasure. Love being here. All right. Now, normally you and I would be talking about guns and things that go bang. And, you know, we could have a rollicking good conversation about that. But you and I had a conversation not so many years ago about uh, what it's like to really pull yourself together and live with frugality. And I don't mean like grind by in this sad-faced existence, but to basically save money at every opportunity you could. And, And you told me about how you actually found a kind of fulfillment in, in doing so. And I, I was wondering if you would, would mind sharing that experience with my listeners. Absolutely. So just to kind of give a little bit of context, I think for, for some of your, I don't middle age and some of your older listeners that some of the younger listeners might not quite understand was the experience that was 2008, nine, 10 and 11, that, that, you know, kind of financial window where, the world was on fire. That was kind of an interesting period to, to train adults through, so to say. Oh, yeah. I mean, you yourself, I'm sure, you you know, I think everyone saw foreclosures left and right and jobs in 401ks disappearing. It was an interesting time to try and, you know, make life, life decisions. And it was difficult to get ahead, so to say. So me and my wife kind of hit rock bottom. We, we were doing some subcontracting work and we were in the construction industry. And... Man, we, we ate humble pie. We hit rock bottom. And, um, you know, as, as a young 20-something-year-old young man, we had one contractor stiff me for $50,000. And Ooh. that was just one of one of many business dealings that just failed. And the gentleman went bankrupt. And uh, I got I got footed with all the bills, unfortunately. So we, we literally, we didn't just hit rock bottom. We hit negative rock bottom. We were, you know six figures in the hole. And wow. In, in my early twenties, that was humbling. So to go, to go to your mailbox and you get a stack of mail and there's, you know, 10, 15 bills and one piece of junk mail and one piece that's addressed to the wrong address that somebody put in the wrong address. But you know, you, you literally owe everyone your life. It's everyone has a stake to your claim to own a PCN. 
that that kind of crushing weight is just beyond depressing. So we got hungry for change and we decided, you know, this, this is not a way to live a life owing people. And we decided we were, we were going to try and fight for our freedom. And it really came with an, a re-education of, of, of the way you have to think. And it really came down to looking at money differently. And a thing that I've grown to love is, um, like you, you, you yourself have seen when people win the lottery, how quickly they become bankrupt, right? Right. There's no sense of responsibility tied to that money. Right. And the thing I've, I've learned to love is that financial literacy is, is not a side effect of wealth. Like you don't just get money and then learn how to handle it. Wealth is a side effect of financial literacy. Once you learn to understand money, you will accumulate wealth. You don't just all of a sudden, like if, you're, if your family gives you money, you get some inheritance, you get the lottery, you're not going to all of a sudden know how to plan it because if you were poor before, you are going to be poor afterwards. If you didn't know how to handle money or to be wise with it, you know, a fool and his money is soon parted. And for very many years, I was, I was that fool. I spent being naive. I, I was going through the debt cycle, credit cards, debt. I mean, you name it. So when me and my wife hit rock bottom and you're eating humble pie, I, I said, I'm either going to get free of this or we're going to die trying. And we grabbed every book we possibly could on financial literacy just to try and learn to speak the language. Because, And I don't fault anybody who, who struggles with understanding finances. Finances is, is math. And if you don't understand the language of finance, it's kind of like in your home, if your parents don't speak Mandarin Chinese, you're never going to learn Mandarin Chinese at home. So if your parents don't teach you financial literacy, the odds of you learning it are slim to none. So that's, that's the hard part is too many of us in society are not taught, and then we become victims of that repetitive cycle. So you have to learn it, and you have to, you have to retrain your brain. So, you know, we were reading books like Dave Ramsey's Total Money Makeover, The, the Richest Man in Babylon, and that's, and that's one of my favorite reads. Have you had the opportunity to read that one? I have. Yep. That's a, that's a classic. That's a fun little read. It's probably like, what, 100 pages and super cheap. You can get it on Amazon. And if any of your listeners have a desire to start a, a financial journey of their own, that is such a great book to light that fire in a fun way. So go get yourself a copy of The Richest Man in Babylon. And if you don't absolutely love it, you can email me and I'll <laughs> refund your money because I'll buy the book from you and I'll give it to somebody who will appreciate it. So what, what other so, books did you find useful? You know, um, The Millionaire Next. Or, uh, I mean, God, like, I've realistically, you just, yeah, and, and it just, you know, it just, it makes you think, like, getting successful is not about status symbols. Getting successful, nope. getting successful is about, you know, proudly eating that, that, that bit of ramen at home or, you know, cooking your breakfast and not eating out and avoiding, avoiding the car payment. And me and my wife, I took a, when I was contracting, I had a big, beautiful, lifted Ford F-350 diesel and we had to eat some humble pie and I sold it. And was, I had, I fortunately had some positive equity in it, like 1500 bucks. And I found an old engineering company that had a, an old rusty GMC pickup, but it had a rebuilt engine in it. And I paid 1500 bucks for this old rust bucket. And I drove that <laughs> son of a gun for five years. Wow. And the door, you'd open the door and it would drop two inches. The cushion, <laughs> the padding on the seat was gone. So you'd sit right on the springs and my family made fun of me. They're like, and finally, when we started getting out of debt, my family said, Sam, like, you, I know you got a little bit of money put away. Why don't you guys go get a new vehicle? 
And I'm like, well, it's still running, so who cares? I don't care what anyone thinks because I, I remember what it felt like. I, I paid the bank's payment for a vehicle that I didn't own for years and years and years, and I finally had a truck that I owned. And it was a piece of crap, but I was proud of my piece of crap. You know what I mean? It's, I didn't. Nobody had claim to my time, and yet I still had transportation, you know? Yeah, it was doing the job that needed to be done. Right. And you can and, be grateful you know, for I, that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I had te- coworkers that would tease me about, you know, my, my kind of modest transportation. And finally I had to tease one of the guys back and I, I won't say the gentleman's name. And I said, Hey, so-and-so, you know, he's making fun of me, you know, nice feeder truck. And I said, Hey, so-and-so I said, you know, what's really funny is uh, you're, you're going to the bank and you're going to go deposit it into your check into the bank bank's account. I said, I'm going to the bank and I'm going to deposit my check into my account. So who's, you know, who's the idiot there? Ouch. Yeah, but no, your, but, your your point is well taken, though. Um, I, it's it's sad when you realize how much of ourselves sometimes gets wrapped up in what I drive, what I wear, you know, what my neighborhood is, and and it's it's I guess it's status, you know. There's there's nothing more simple. It's just status, and it turns out we can all live with a slightly diminished status and still be grateful for you know what we have. Yeah. And me and my wife, it, it went from feeling like a sacrifice to actually feeling like an opportunity, like a privilege and, and fun. And for us, as soon as a bill got paid off, you felt a little less weight on your shoulder and you felt a little less weight on your shoulder. And eventually it got to a, a beautiful moment where there was the last bill was gone and we didn't have any, any more accounts that we had to deposit the money to, you know, is this going to a, a credit card or is this going to a car payment or is this going to this? And, and finally there was no other account to pay off wow. but our own. So, so it started going. So once you get that moment of freedom where you're like, wow, this actually goes into my account. Nobody has a claim on my time. I'm free. And it's so invigorating to put your first like 500 bucks away and, and everyone should have an emergency fund. So I use that as, as, as kind of a, your first keeping amount outside of your emergency fund. But Instead of putting 500 bucks on a credit card, it's like, well, I have nobody else that I owe this to, so I get to put this in my account. And then the next month, there's a little more, and there's a little more. And you kind of realize, you're like, wow, I have six months' worth of money in my bank account. And that's just the start. That's a humble beginning. But you're like, you think, I could quit my job for six months. So if a coworker yells at you or you have a boss that's a total <laughs> jerk, and you realize that you have you know, a couple of months' worth of bills, and so you don't have to work because you have to. You're working every day now because you want to, because you have a little bit of freedom. If you if you were in a completely toxic work situation, you could leave and go find a job, and you have six months worth of, worth of bills put away. So you realize that every time an aggressive coworker or maybe a nasty customer or something, you're there because you want to, not because you have to. So you're tolerating that because you have the freedom to do so, and it feels so much more freeing to do so. And as me and my wife went through that liberating philosophy, and we had money, we didn't want to spend it because then you realize you were trading that freedom and opportunity for a little bit of consumption. You're like, I don't really need the steak dinner tonight. We're just going to go get something a little more modest. And Spencer, we had really, sorry, we're, go ahead. We're, we're, unfortunately, we're coming up on the end of the segment here. Um, I, I want to have you back on the show again because I think this is going to be kind of a topic that deserves to be revisited. One of the things I remember most is you told me how you and your wife would actually make a game out of how can we have the cheapest date possible and and rather than that was being, a lot of fun yeah instead of being drudgery it, it like it, it boosted your imagination and you guys i don't know it sounded like a pretty cool idea nevertheless yeah. spencer worthington thank you thank you for being on my show thanks for being my sponsor too i truly Always appreciate a privilege. it friend.
All right. Thanks, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part by Dixie Chiropractic. You can visit them at DixieChiro.com. This is fantastic news for my listeners in southern Utah especially if you're dealing with pain, like from a car accident injury or from bulging herniated discs or neuropathy. Just go to DixieChiro.com. I actually include a link in my show notes under sponsors. You can click on that link and learn about the $99 intro special for for bulging herniated discs. Check this out. $99 gets you two treatments plus a massage. That's a deal. If you're dealing with neuropathy, Here's the $99 Calmare treatment plus massage. Get all the details at DixieChiro.com. Again, that's Dr. Ward Wagner, Dixie Chiropractic. Their website is DixieChiro.com. I guess you've probably noticed that the folks who are so desperate to save us from misinformation just happen to be the same ones who are weaponizing the current thing in order to silence dissent. I've got a great article here from Jordan Schachtel on his dossier uh, substack. Weaponizing the current thing, Biden's ministry of truth and its origins. And he says, this is not about tackling foreign disinformation. This is not about protecting you from the Russians interfering, you know, by by feeding bad information to us. This is about the Department of Homeland Security targeting domestic dissent. And that's why you and I cannot just shrug it off as well. You know, politicians are going to do what they're going to do. This is pretty serious stuff. In fact, I, I don't know if you have seen any of the video of uh, what's happening right now. Now, granted, there's a state of war taking place in, in Ukraine, but um, one of the most chilling videos <clears throat> that I've seen in a long time was, um, I mean, we're talking fully armored up soldiers coming into people's homes at gunpoint, taking people away because they had posted something that was unflattering on social media. They had posted something that was supportive of you know, Russia, or they had posted something that they felt was disrespectful. The, the thing that got me was the guy's like, you're not being very respectful of the flag because someone had posted something of the Ukraine flag and said, you know, this is a flag that stands for murder and for deception or something. Anyway, it's this, this is a blood-soaked rag. You may disagree strongly, right? I mean, they look, maybe you think Russia is totally in the wrong, and that's that could very well be the case. But the idea that uh, Ukraine just passed laws saying, you know, you can't dissent. You cannot in any way show that you aren't fully behind us and that you may have doubts. You know, you, you just can't you can't show that you have any questions of those in power. Now, that's an extreme situation, but that's logically where we are headed on the current track that we're face, we're facing. And it's not going to take a matter of, you know, Russia attacking us in war and, you know, bombs flying and whatnot to make that happen. You can see the American political class is gearing up for a preemptive shutdown of dissent, a clampdown. I'm sure they would love to do it before the midterm elections, because I think they're very fearful of what's about to happen. Here's how Jordan Schachtel puts it. He says, what is the Department of Homeland Security's disinformation governance board, or rather the Biden administration's Ministry of Truth, been up to since its founding? 
Nobody really knows, but the timeline of its creation coincides with increasingly disturbing activities launched within Homeland Security to target not Russians, but American citizens. He says, far from targeting foreign disinformation or anything of the sort, the activities of the Department of Homeland Security have increasingly focused on targeting and surveilling domestic dissent. We only know about the Truth Ministry's origin timeline because its appointed leader, progressive activist Nina Jankowitz, revealed as much on Twitter. Her exact words were, cats out of the bag, here's what I've been up to the past two months and why I've been a bit quiet on here. Honored to be serving in the Biden administration at DHS.gov or DHSGov and helping them shape our counter-disinformation efforts. So prior to the announcement from the Department of Homeland Security last week, there was no sign of such a disinformation governance board outfit operating within the federal bureaucracy. But there are clues and a track record of similar outfits that may have served as predecessors to the current namesake. So if you're looking for answers from the government, well, you're not going to get any. Jordan Schachtel says the people in charge of the Truth Ministry, unsurprisingly, have no intention of being honest about its founding function and leadership. In an interview over the weekend, DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, Jankowicz's boss, claimed she was eminently qualified, a renowned expert and politically neutral. Now, that neutral claim is laughably absurd, as Jankowicz has openly campaigned for Democratic politicians and, most notably, the notorious disinformation launderer that is Hillary Clinton. Jankowicz appears to have personal and professional ties to the Clinton cartel through her work as a Fulbright Clinton fellow, a job that included her serving as an advisor to the Ukrainian Foreign Ministry. By the way, he backs all this up with with links to, to establish this is not just something he's pulling out of thin air. Jordan Schachtel says, Now that any sane person can clearly establish that Jankowitz is a political activist who has no interest in separating truth from disinformation, let's get back to the Department of Homeland Security component. DHS claims the Disinformation Governance Board, led by Russia specialist Jankowitz, has a primary mission that will focus on tackling misinformation that leads to migrant surges at the U.S. border in addition to combating supposed disinformation coming from Russia. Now, he says it's unclear why Jankowitz would lead an organization that ostensibly targets non-English-speaking Latin American residents. Given, that she has the, given the fact that she has no established familiarity with the languages spoken by the vast majority of migrants. He says, additionally, it's the State Department that has traditionally held the role of managing propaganda and counter-propaganda operations, especially when it comes to Eastern Europe and Russia, which is the niche focus of Jankowicz's career thus far. Schachtel says, perhaps the real target of the Ministry of Truth is the American people, specifically Americans who don't conform with the current thing. Now, the, ra- the campaigns took a rapidly aggressive posture against peaceful American political opposition in late 2021 when the Department of Homeland Security issued a series of memos classifying opponents of COVID lockdowns as potential domestic violent extremists. Right? Do you remember that? Well, DHS also warned about these so-called extremists discussing conspiracy theories concerning the origins of COVID-19 and effectiveness of vaccines. Despite the vaccines not actually working and the origins of COVID-19 being repeatedly covered up by the federal bureaucracy. At around the same time of the Truth Ministry's apparent founding, DHS was continuing to issue increasingly noxious bulletins targeting not foreigners, but American citizens classing them as disinformation agents and potential violent extremists. 
I mean, here's a direct quote from one of their missives. Meanwhile, COVID-19 mitigation measures, particularly COVID-19 vaccine and mask mandates, have been used by domestic violent extremists to justify violence since 2020 and could continue to inspire these extremists to target government, healthcare, and academic institutions that they associate with those measures. Now, Jordan Schachtel says a possible predecessor to the Disinformation Governance Board is an outfit that sprung up in February called the Mis, Dis, and Malinformation Team, or MDM, which was tasked with building national resilience to MDM and foreign influence activities. Now, this MDM team was established at DHS through the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA, which is most notably in charge of overseeing election integrity issues. He says in February, at the same time, around the same time, rather, as the apparent founding of the Disinformation Governance Board, DHS likened opposition to lockdowns as a sign of likely terrorist behavior. In fact, the most notable aspect of a domestic terrorist is a person who will sow discord and undermine public trust in government institutions, DHS said. Whoops. Sorry. I just felt a little chill go up my spine there. Uh, Jordan Schachtel says COVID-19 mitigation measures, particularly COVID-19 vaccine and mask measures, mask mandates have been used by domestic violent extremists to justify violence since 2020 and could continue to inspire these extremists to target those government health care and academic institutions they associate with those measures. I mean, this is this is directly from the, the government, the horse's mouth, you know, so to speak. So it continues claiming that those who disseminate what's called false or misleading narratives regarding unsubstantiated widespread election fraud and COVID-19 are signs of a likely terrorist. There's no public track record for the disinformation governance board, but he says many hints are pointing to the reality of an organization established to continue surveilling and harassing the Biden administration's domestic political opposition under the guise of fighting disinformation. So Jordan Schachtel says, whether it's a war in Ukraine or your next mRNA COVID shot, you'd better be on the right side of their current thing, or you might just be labeled a potential violent extremist terrorist. And he says the Ministry of Truth will serve as a complementary instrument for that system. I know. Maybe the, maybe the sky isn't falling. Maybe this is just Henny Penny running around, you know, or Chicken Little, sorry, running around <laughs> saying that, oh, no, this is this is a big deal. I think it is a big deal, though. And the timing, more than anything, is what makes me wonder if the noose isn't being tightened, again, in preparation for those upcoming midterm elections. Politicians are scared. Maybe they have good reason to be. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is the place where we gather to revel in wrong think. And it's not because I have all the answers and I'm here to just, you know, speak to you from my lofty tower in the rarefied air of wisdom in which I reside, because I don't reside there. 
I'm just a guy trying to make his way through this world and trying to find and latch onto truth as best I can. I'm encouraging you to do the same, which means you got to question everything you see, everything you hear, everything you read, including what I'm sharing with you. So it's okay to disagree. My goal here is not to create more followers. I want to create more leaders who are capable of thinking clearly and independently for themselves. What that means is you're going to outgrow me at some point. And I'm not going to be sad. I'll be happy for you because you will be on your own trajectory at that point. Got some great sponsors who make this possible daily. Dixie Chiropractic, HSL Ammo, Sewing and Quilting Center. Monticello College, Life-Saving Food, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, and Govern Your Crypto. Well, it looks like things are about to get all mostly peaceful up in here, thanks to a leaked document from the Supreme Court showing that apparently a draft is in the process of being written right now. Uh, Justice Samuel Alito, I believe, was, was the person writing this particular draft, And it seems to indicate that at least five of the Supreme Court justices are voting to overturn Roe v. Wade. I mean, this this is a pivotal decision that has stood for nearly 50 years. And it's it's the one that ignited the abortion debate. I mean, there was abortion debate going on, but rather than, you know, tamping down the feelings and settling the issue, well, okay, we're going to make sure that everybody understands in every state... Abortion is available on demand. End of story. Well, it didn't. It actually made things worse. And, uh, you know, there there are very few things that will set the left off like abortion. But uh, it, it sure appears, and, and I don't know the, the motivations of whoever leaked this. Apparently it was some clerk at the Supreme Court who leaked it to the news. And, of course, the news media has run with it. And I've seen some very dire predictions. Some people saying this is a terrible breach of, of trust and security and decorum in how the court is supposed to operate. You know, they're not blaming the justices themselves. They're just saying that, you know, to leak a decision like this is is very bad news. So... I feel like someone just poured a big, you know, party cup full of gasoline, a solo cup right out there on the fire. And uh, we're going to see some pretty interesting fireworks, most likely. Guess we, we should consider ourselves forewarned. Things are changing quick, right? Suppose this will be used as another excuse to crack down on free speech and dissent. I suppose we're going to find out. So I want to start on a slightly different note. Okay, it's I've, I've mentioned a couple of current events, but I want to I want to talk a little bit about forgiveness, and you know, forgiving other people is one thing. I think it's real, by the way. I think it's it's actually one of the greatest things we can learn to do. If you if you want peace, and if you don't want peace, well, never forgive anybody, and I promise you won't have peace. But forgiving other people is really kind of easy compared to forgiving yourself. Got a great article here from Paul Rosenberg explaining how forgiving ourselves is an essential part of becoming a great person. He says, I think we've all heard people say that in order to repair a relationship, it's necessary to forgive the other person first to accept that they, like you, have their flaws and that you will no longer hold them to account for what they did. Now, those of us who are able to follow that advice know that while it doesn't solve everything, it is necessary. And we've also learned that to honestly forgive does something to us, something deep and healthy. But he says, the point I want to make today is that we need to repair the relationships we hold with ourselves and that a necessary part of that is forgiving ourselves. And he says, to be clear, when I say forgiving ourselves, I mean forgiving 
every part of ourselves, body, mind, soul, etc. So the next question that comes up is forgiving ourselves for precisely what? And he says, for that question, he says, I have a good answer. You're forgiving yourself for whatever bothers you about yourself. That's kind of profound. He says, we all have things we regret having done and even that we regret being. And for all of those, we need to forgive ourselves. The fact is that there's a great deal of tragedy involved with life on this planet. And he says, I believe that we can repair at least most of it, but that's a second thought, a yeah, but thought. The first truth, and a hard one for some of us to accept, is that there's a lot of tragedy on this planet and that it touches us all. He says, I think we would do well to accept that fact. Life is here, that is to say, life here rather, that is to say, is tough. And he says, I don't think humanity's doomed to that toughness forever, but it clearly is here now. And it will clearly remain here for some time. So we shouldn't expect ourselves to be untouched by the tragic. We were born into it, after all. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, once again, I'm extremely optimistic about our human race and our human future. He says, I think we can do a lot better right now as individuals, and I think we can do far better as a species over time. More than that, he says, I know we will. Still, we're surrounded by a significant level of the tragic, and we can't blame ourselves for it. It was already deeply rooted by the time we got here. And it's also true that a big part of fixing it in ourselves immediately and in our species over time is to forgive ourselves, to not hold ourselves to account for the difficulties we were born into. In fact, he says, I always liked the way C.S. Lewis illustrated this in a passage from The Abolition of Man. C.S. Lewis said, I can hold that to call children delightful or old men venerable is not simply to record a psychological fact about our parental or filial emotions at the moment but to recognize a quality which demands a certain response from us whether we make it or not. I, do, I myself do not enjoy the society of small children, and I recognize this as a defect in myself, just as a man may have to recognize that he's tone-deaf or colorblind. End quote. So Paul Rosenberg says, the better, we see where we, the better we see where we're able to go and what we're able to be, the better we see what Lewis called the defects in ourselves. We need to accept those and to acknowledge we were born into them and we need to forgive ourselves for them. Once past that, though, it becomes our job to repair those defects. Uh-huh. See, nobody's going to skate on this one. But even here, he says, we have to recognize that we haven't the time, energy, and insight to repair all of them. And certainly not right away. And again, this is tragic. But it's something that has eluded all men and women through all of our history. So he says, I think we need to accept it, at least provisionally, as a present-era fact. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, I personally hope to escape the entropy and tragedy of Earth life rather sooner than later, and perhaps you do too. But if we lay blame on ourselves for a lack of immediate success, we have left the confines of reality and are injuring ourselves to no benefit. And more practically, we slow ourselves down. So he says, it's a funny thing, but the better we face the unlovely things about ourselves... If we can do so without attacking and hating ourselves, the easier and faster we can repair them. I don't know why, but that one just makes sense to me. It's a lot easier to fix up something that you love. If that something is yourself. It's a lot harder to put your heart into fixing something up, uh, you know, that, that you despise. That's like, you know, putting premium gas into a car you just wrecked. 
Paul Rosenberg says, said differently. If we expect ourselves to be 100% perfect right now, flatly ignoring the fact that we were born into a world where no one ever has, we hobble ourselves. It's by accepting the situation that we were born into that we can transcend it. Yes, we found ourselves with certain unlovely characteristics, but we've also found ourselves with capacities that seem limitless. It's our job to transcend the former by applying the latter. And forgiving ourselves is an essential step in moving past tragedy and into transcendence. It's non-optional, and it works. Man, I love his take on stuff. And I think this is a big one. If you're living with regrets or if you, if you find that inner voice, you know, that little inner dialogue that uh, you find yourself engaging in from time to time, if it's saying nasty things about you, or it's constantly reminding you how worthless you are or how ugly you are or how poor you are or whatever, if it's harping on some particular defect, maybe it's time to consider forgiving yourself. Which, as Paul Rosenberg explains, doesn't mean, you know, hey, I don't have to work on anything now. Why? I forgave myself. No, I think it's more a matter of just recognize, yep, we were born into a fallen world. Every one of us is prone to some of the effects of that fallen world, including disappointments, including falling short, including flaws. Some are very noticeable. I would suspect most of those flaws probably exist in our hearts and therefore are less noticeable. But we know they're there, and sometimes we hate ourselves for it. Learn to forgive yourself. You want to try something really challenging sometime? Go to God and ask Him to help you see yourself as He sees you. Now that could be pretty eye-opening. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Want to give a shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. If you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West right now, you know that it's the hottest real estate market that most of us have ever seen. So when you find the home of your dreams, you got to have your financing squared away right now. This is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage comes in with decades of experience in the lending industry and the clout to get you the loan you need in a timely fashion. From VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, talk to Heather and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. You can call 435-703-4522. By the way, this is, this is true for anybody in the state of Utah or the state of Idaho. She can help you no matter what. You can stop by 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, I'm thinking this is a time to get very serious about your freedom of speech. Maybe you have felt that, oh, there's a few places they're pushing back on it, but, you know, it's really not that big of a deal. I'm going to beg to differ. I think this is the time to get serious because I believe we are seeing um, a closing of the window or at least someone trying to slam the window shut in which you are going to be able to assert your freedom of speech. And and this this new ministry of truth that the Biden administration has unveiled, I would say created, but it's been around actually for a couple of months just operating in the shadows. 
it's been unveiled to us. Oh, look, this is here to protect you from disinformation. I want to share with you the take of James Howard Kunstler, who very plainly says, disinformation is just a boot in your face. He says, behind all this is the growing panic in the left that they're culpable for an enormous raft of crimes committed against their own country, and they'll eventually end up in court, in prison, or worse. So this is about assuming control, including shutting down people's ability to freely speak. James Howard Kunstler says, since Elon Musk pounced on Twitter, are you not amazed to see just how dedicated to the suppression of speech the left is? Censorship is the left's very spark of life. Everything they stand for is so false and lawless that truth magnetically repels them. Now, this may surprise you, but he says truth and reality are joined at the hip. So when you work hard to suppress one, you're also stomping the face of the other. Disinformation just means anything the left doesn't want you to say out loud. But he says the truth is that everything the left stands for these days is some kind of a hustle, which is the cheap street version of a racket, meaning an effort to extract something of value from you dishonestly. It's the only way they know how to operate. It necessarily and chiefly depends on the deployment of lies, which by definition are propositions at odds with reality. The more they traffic in lies, the further they must distance themselves from reality and try to coerce you to go along with ever more absurdity, mostly peaceful riots, men with ovaries, free and fair elections, insurrection, conspiracy theories, Leah Thomas in the fast lane, safe and effective vaccines, believe it or else... So James Howard Kunstler says the left ends up at war with reality. And that adds up to a bad business model for running a society. And the results are now plain to see. What in the USA is not failing these days? Our Potemkin economy of nail parlors, porn sites, pizza huts, casinos, drugs, and helicopter money? Our reckless relations with other countries? Public and higher education? Medicine? Financial markets? The sputtering engine of government under a phantom president? It's all sinking into chaos and incoherence. For now, food costs more than ever. And wait until it's simply unavailable. Nobody will care about anything else after that. All this failure requires cover stories or narratives. Russia did it. COVID-19 did it. White supremacists did it. Trump did it. Narrative failure would equal failure of the left altogether. So the left requires the sturdiest possible apparatus for suppressing counter-narratives that lean in the direction of reality, its enemy. The left found that apparatus in social media, the new vehicle for political debate, especially Twitter, which was so easily, blatantly, and dishonestly manipulated backstage by mysterious code ninjas. Twitter enjoys subsidy relations with the government that inclined it to do the government's bidding. In effect... The government enlisted Twitter to undermine and override Americans' First Amendment protections by proxy. Now we have the Disinformation's Governance Board to be run by a TikTok musical comedy star, Nina Jankowitz, an instant laughing stock since retailing disinformation has been her main occupation in the scant years she's been on the deep state scene. Ms. Jankowitz is a notorious Russiagate hoaxer and PSYOP agent in the October 2020 emergence of Hunter Biden's laptop. So she has zero credibility as anything but a professional falsifier. Her disinformation governance board has no authority to regulate anything. It's just a lame charade that can only draw more attention to the left's hatred of truth and reality. 
Now, the left pretends that free speech is a threat to civilization because, as usual, they are projecting psychologically. Their world is a mirror. In fact, the left is a threat to civilization. And behind all this is the growing panic in the left that they are culpable for an enormous raft of crimes committed against their own country and will eventually end up in court, in prison, or worse. Mr. Durham is just the leading edge of what will eventually be a heavy blade of judgment falling down on their necks. He's busy sorting out the Russia collusion flim-flam that turned into a coup to oust Mr. Trump, but that's just the beginning. In November, the Democrats will lose control of Congress and its oversight powers of agency operations, and in 2023, there will be inquiries galore into the neo-Jacobin craziness imposed on our country by the folks behind Joe Biden. So James Howard Kunstler says that includes such dicey matters as the several years of malevolent mismanagement of COVID-19, which looks more and more like a deliberate effort to kill large numbers of citizens. And then moving along to the behind-the-scenes official support of those 2020 BLM Antifa riots, plus the ballot shenanigans around the last presidential election, the colossal failure to enforce border security, featuring Homeland Security uh, Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, the Biden regime's conduct in provoking and prolonging the war between Russia and Ukraine, and not the least, the overseas money-grubbing of the president's family as documented in Hunter's laptop. And he says, I'm sure I left a few things out. So if Mr. Biden is still on the scene in January next year, he'll be the first president not only impeached, but convicted and removed by the Senate. And if for some reason he avoids criminal prosecution for treason out of some pitiful need for the government to maintain official decorum before the rest of the world, his brothers and his degenerate son may not be so lucky. Interesting stuff. This one particularly caught my attention because uh, um, there is, uh, I know that there is a, a grand jury that is, is being formed, a citizen's grand jury that is being formed um, right now in Idaho, where I live. And uh, that I believe that that citizen's grand jury is going to be hearing um, the evidence against the Biden family. And I don't, I don't know what it all leads to. But uh, I'm, I'm sincerely hoping, man, I would, I would love the chance to be a grand juror and to get to hear some of that evidence for myself. So knock on wood, maybe I'll have something to share with you here in the not-so-distant future about this. I, th- I think it's actually like coming up next week. I wish I had more details, but at this point I don't. And, and some of this probably needs to be kept in the dark. Hopefully I'm not spilling the beans too prematurely, but... This whole thing about disinformation, it's not about protecting you from information that could lead you astray. It's about keeping you from recognizing and acknowledging things that are inconvenient to the people in power. And it's, you know, things that you probably should know about. Like if you were if you were being taken advantage of, if you were being thoroughly screwed over by people in authority, would you want to know about it or would you want to just pretend like, oh, no, they're... I'm sure they're good people in their hearts, and they're probably just doing the best they can under difficult circumstances. You know, I, I want to ascribe noble intentions to pretty much everybody, at least, you know, give them benefit of the doubt. But the track record on this one is long enough and coercive enough, and that's the, that's the key thing to look for. Who's willing to use coercion to get you to do what they want you to do rather than persuade you? I'm pretty convinced. Nope, we're dealing with some straight-up evil, power-hungry individuals. So you better figure out 
where your line in the sand is because by the time you need to grow a backbone, it could be too late. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to give a shout out here to Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. Very happy to have them as sponsors. And uh, I actually had a great talk with uh, Eric Alsop yesterday. I'm, I'm going to have his wife, Teresa, who is the, uh, she's the owner of the store. I'm going to have her come on the show. And we're going to talk a little bit about who is into sewing. <clears throat> now, guys, I know, you know, we're into turning wrenches. We're into shooting guns and barbecuing things and so forth. But I'm going to ask you to step out of your mindset for just a moment. And particularly, gentlemen, if you have a woman in your life, and I'm going to say uh, middle age or older, you want to really make her day, you should, you should consider the gift of a sewing machine or sewing supplies or something that would allow her to enjoy her hobby. We talked about, Eric and I talked about, you know, is it just a hobby? And you have to, you have to wonder this because this is the kind of hobby that people will literally sit up into the wee hours of the morning just because they get carried away. It's so much fun to create. And it is so satisfying. And what they create, whether it be quilts, whether it be, you know, blankets, clothing, whatever the case may be, toys, pillows, it's something that can become a heritage item, something that can be handed down. Well, you realize your great-grandmother made this. Contact SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com. If you live in southern Utah, swing by the store. They back what they sell. They service it. They'll teach you how to use it. Like I say, guys, you really want to make her happy? You should really consider something in this direction. Just hand her the checkbook and step out of the way. She'll know what to do from there. So you may have noticed this. I hope I'm not pointing out something you hadn't seen, but energy prices are higher this year than last year, right? <laughs> yeah, a little understatement there, Brian. Kind of like the Arctic can be a little chilly at certain times of year. Got an article here from John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education. The title, Why Energy Prices Are Projected to Increase 50% in 2022 After Doubling Last Year. So, sorry, this is, this is not particularly good news. But if energy prices are going to the moon, you probably deserve to understand why. John Miltimore shares three reasons why this is happening. He says, sometimes I have to remind myself how good we Americans have it. Because let's face it, there's a lot of bad news out there, particularly on the economics front. Inflation, which had hit 8.5% in March, gets the most attention, and rightly so. Less attention has been given to the financial markets. The Nasdaq just had its worst month since 2008. Remember that? The year of the financial meltdown. And the S&P 500, meanwhile, is having its worst start to a year since the Great Depression. And then there's food and energy prices but there's no way to sugarcoat the data, which is a shame because there's no place Americans feel the pinch more in that we all eat and we all use energy. Miltimore says in its latest commodity markets outlook, the World Bank projected commodity prices will remain higher for years to come. Perhaps most alarming is that the multilateral bank projects or bank projects energy prices will soar 50.5% this year. And that's after nearly doubling in 2021. The rise in energy prices, the Wall Street Journal reports, has been the most significant since the early 1970s. Now, food prices, meanwhile, which rose 31% last year, are projected to increase 23% this year. Needless to say, these price increases come at considerable cost, 
particularly to the most vulnerable in society. Ian Coase, director of the World Bank's Prospects Group, says the resulting increase in food and energy prices is taking a significant human and economic toll. It will likely stall progress in reducing poverty and exacerbate already elevated inflationary pressures around the world. So what caused the surge in food and energy prices? Well, John Miltimore says any economist will tell you prices rise and fall for all sorts of reasons related to supply and demand. But in this case, we can find three primary reasons. First, as the World Bank notes, is the war that Russia initiated in Ukraine, which has disrupted trade and supplies of energy and food. Now, in some cases, the authors note, it's easy to spot examples of how disruptions in one commodity have rippled across the economy, such as how high natural gas prices increased the cost of fertilizer, which has pushed agricultural prices upward. So there's no question that the war has had an impact, especially on European markets, where natural gas prices have reached all-time highs. But two other causes have received far less attention. The first is the Federal Reserve. The central bank injected some $5 trillion into the economy over the past two years, driving its balance sheet to $9 trillion, even as huge swaths of the global economy were shut down by the governments during the pandemic. Adding trillions of dollars to the economy in a two-year span, in other words, flooding the system with money, as Fed Chairman Jerome Powell described it, while constricting the production of goods and services, that's a pretty obvious recipe for inflation, right? More dollars chasing the same or lower amount of goods and services. Inflation is caused when the money supply in an economy grows at a faster rate than the economy's ability to produce goods and services. That's how the Federal Reserve Bank in St. Louis explains. Now, how the feds didn't see inflation coming, that's another story. But Miltimore says, finally, here in the U.S., the government has continued to inhibit the production and distribution of energy. From killing the Keystone Pipeline to halting drilling permits on federal lands and more, the Biden administration has made it increasingly difficult to meet the rising demand for energy. Now, this is what has caused so much economic pain in the short run. Fortunately, as fees, Peter Jacobson explained, there's reason for optimism on the energy front in the long run if we allow markets to function. In the meantime, though, he says, Americans, as they struggle with higher and higher prices, can only hope that more people realize an important truth. Locking down Americans and printing trillions was an act of insanity. And... Perhaps the idea of quitting fossil fuels is a little bit premature. Man, I wish I had good news to share with you, you know, economically. All I can say is, you know, everybody I know is is in their own way trying to mitigate, you know, the effects of inflation. I think the people I feel the sorriest for are the ones who are on fixed incomes. Okay, like my dear old gray-haired mama. I, I look at her... And, you know, her home is paid off, so she has secure housing. She actually gets, a, you know, a decent break on her property taxes. But every dollar that she receives buys less today than it did, you know, even a month ago. This is how crazy it's getting. They're starting to, well, when we break down the inflation uh, results, we have to, you know, look at this uh, from month to month now, as opposed to year in or to year to year comparisons. I'm not trying to make you feel bad or I'm not trying to make you feel scared, but I'm saying it makes you wonder, okay, what do we do from here? Especially as, as these costs are expected to go up.
I don't have an answer that is going to fit everybody's situation. But just a couple of things to think about. Uh, yes, I know there are people who say, well, you know, hang on to as much debt as possible. If, you know, if it's being inflated, you know, and we have to, we'll see our wages rise. You know, maybe we have to see our, our uh, income uh, receive raises, you know, on an hourly basis or daily. You go and cash your paycheck before it uh, inflates, you know, to, to nothingness. Sure, sure. You know, I'll pay off my mortgage in just a couple of paychecks at that rate. I think it's a better idea to get as far from debt as you possibly can and to have as much ability as you possibly can to stand on your own. Now, this I'm talking about being able to fix things on your own, being able to grow and produce more of your own food, being able to preserve it. I mean, we're not talking a mountain man existence exactly, although for some people that may not seem like a bad idea. Heck yeah, man, <laughs> give me a place out in the woods away from everything and, and I'll be just fine. So there's, there's really no nice way to say it. This is probably as, as gentle as I can put it. We all need to be prepared for a very clear downshift in our standard of living. And I'm not talking about staggering through the ruins, wearing rags and eating rats or sawdust or something. I'm just talking about we've had it so good for so long that we've come to take it for granted. I will always be able to run down to Costco and pick up, you know, a few things that I need and a few things I probably don't need. And, of course, one of their delicious rotisserie chickens. And it's always just going to be there. You may notice that uh, as things get more and more expensive, people are going to have to start making choices. Do we go out to eat? Do we take a vacation this year? That's probably one of the big ones for me. I'm very gas price conscious, and partly because I drive a bit of a gas guzzler, but I I feel it at the pump. You know, when you hear somebody's like, well, I'm making a trip across the country right now. I just did our seventh tank full of gas. I don't know about you, but for me, my my four-wheel drive... It's it's pushing 90 bucks a fill up and that's that's nothing compared to pickups which are which are nothing compared to semis <laughs> which are you know taking you know $1000 or more a fill up it's it's an interesting time and of course as those gas prices continue to be high the price of everything that arrives on the store shelf is continuing to be high what can you do consistently stock up learn skills Have some tools on hand. Be able to solve as many of your own problems as possible. We'll figure out the rest from here. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Want to give a shout out here to lifesavingfood.com. I know it can be daunting the idea of putting together a food storage program. Now, if you if you haven't started, yeah, it feels like wow, that's a tall mountain to climb. If you've already been working on your food storage, you have some put aside for a rainy day, I'm going to encourage you to consider putting aside more. And I want to ask you to consider doing business with lifesavingfood.com. If it's on the website, it is in stock. Prices are going up, and this is true with everything, but the availability is still very good right now, and uh, you'll never regret 
having put away food for a rainy day. Go see what they have to offer. You can click on the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. That's lifesavingfood.com. Well, there's a lot of speculation right now about whether or not the housing market is due for a major correction. Charles Hugh Smith, who is one of the better economic writers out there, has an excellent article asking the question, is housing a bubble that's about to crash? And it's a fairly lengthy and very involved article. He does have a number of charts and and statistics. So um, some of the minutia I'm not going to delve into simply because this this would be better served by going after it on your own time uh, to really take a deep dive. But I want to share some of the excerpts of his article. And one of the things that I find really interesting is when we make this comparison to, well, is it uh, going to be as bad as 2008? We have to remember that there are a lot of factors that are at play since 2008 that, that were not in play then. So he first starts by asking, are we headed into another real estate bubble slash crash? Those who say no see the housing shortage as real, while those who say yes see the demand as a reflection of the Federal Reserve's artificial goosing of the housing market via its unprecedented purchases of mortgage-backed securities and easy-money financial conditions. So he says one of his colleagues at Econ... Let me try this name again. Econimicablogspot.com.blogspot.com recently posted charts calling this assumption into question. And he has a link to this, and and the first chart shows the U.S. population growth rate plummeting as housing starts to soar. The second chart shows housing unit per capita, which has just reached the same extreme as the 2008 housing bubble. So there's a reason to pay attention to this, and okay, that bubble may not have popped, but it seems to be making funny noises. Now, demographics and housing don't reflect a housing shortage nationally. Although there could be scarcities locally, of course, and other factors such as thousands of units being held off the market as short-term rentals or investments by overseas buyers who have no interest in renting their investment dwellings. On a per capita basis, though, he says housing has reached previous bubble levels. That suggests that housing shortages are artificial or local, not necessarily structural. I know where I live in southern Idaho, uh, finding a rental is just this side of impossible it is it's so difficult to, there there aren't even words for it the desperation of some people who have moved to this area to find somewhere anywhere to live is it's not quite tragic but it's it's definitely distressing to see and i'm sure this is true throughout much of the intermountain west because so many people are coming now Charles Hugh Smith goes on to consider how the housing bubble differs from previous bubbles in the late 2000s and, and in the, even in the late 70s, or in the early 2000s and late 70s. And he talks about some of the reasons why it happened. And, and particularly, if you remember, the housing bubble of 2007, 2008 was largely driven by declines in mortgage rates. That's when the Fed basically made an easy money policy to escape the negative effects of the dot-com stock market bubble crash, and they loosened credit and mortgage standards. And these fueled a bubble that morphed into a speculative free-for-all of no down payment, you know, and no document loans. So that generated a speculative frenzy of house flipping. You remember this? Leveraging the equity in the family homes. You could buy two or three homes under construction and then selling them before they were even completed for fat profits and so on. Needless to say... A pool of the pool of potential buyers expanded tremendously when people earning twenty five thousand bucks a year 
could buy a $500,000 home on speculation. But once those bubbles, once that bubble popped, the pool of buyers shrank along with home equity. Now, there's a current uh, number of dynamics in, in our bubble that we're seeing today that weren't big factors in previous bubbles. One of them was the rise in remote work. A lot of people have been working remotely since the late 1990s, enabled Internet-based work. But the pandemic greatly increased the pool of employers willing to accept remote work as a permanent feature of employment. And that trend's been well documented, but the consequences are still unfolding. Remote workers are no longer trapped in unaffordable, congested cities and suburbs. And there are several other trends he sees that have attracted less attention, but still are extremely confident or consequential, rather. Number one, housing in many urban areas are out of reach of all but the top 10% without extraordinary sacrifice. And now unemployment isn't necessarily tied to urban zones. The bottom 90% of young people without family wealth or high incomes are coming to realize the benefits of urban living just aren't worth the extreme sacrifices needed to buy an overvalued house. If you're not making $250,000 a year or more as a couple, the only hope for a middle-class life that includes leisure and some surplus income to invest is to move to some place with much lower housing and other costs. And that place is typically going to be rural America. Because young people right now can't even afford rent, much less buying a house in many urban zones. And urban problems like homelessness, traffic congestion, and crime are endemic and unresolvable, although few are willing to state the obvious. So Americans are maybe counting on some whiz-bang technology to solve all the problems, and they're trying to be optimistic. But unfortunately, problems generated by dysfunctional, overly complex institutions, corruption, and unaffordable costs aren't going to be solved by some new technology. So the decay of cities is only likely to gather momentum. Now, he also points out that in geopolitics, we speak of the core and the periphery. Empires have a core, like Rome and central Italy and the Roman Empire, and a periphery. Britain, North Africa, Egypt, the Levant. As finances and trade decay and costs soar, the periphery is surrendered in order to maintain the core. And he says in urban zones, the same dynamic is going to become increasingly visible. The peripheral neighborhoods will be underfunded to continue protecting the wealthy enclaves. Crime will skyrocket in the periphery, even as what residents of the wealthy enclaves see little decay in their neighborhoods. And this asymmetry, already extreme, is likely to drive social unrest and disorder. It's, it's a kind of self-reinforcing feedback. As periphery neighborhoods deteriorate, the remaining businesses flee and the smart money sells or moves away. Tax revenues plummet, city services decay even further, persuading hangers-on to move before it gets even worse. And cities compensate for the lower revenues by increasing taxes on the remaining residents and cutting services. Each turn of the screw triggers more closures and selling and fewer tax revenues. Dependency chains are becoming increasingly consequential. And the era of cheap, reliable abundance is drawing to a close. We're now entering an era of scarcity in essentials. And the low-hanging fruit of GMO seeds, fertilizers, insecticides, herbicides, and green revolution hybrids have, have all been plucked. The gains have been reaped, but the downside of these dependencies are becoming increasingly consequential. Fertilizer costs are rising fast. Insects and diseases are evading chemicals and vaccines. And the vulnerabilities of monocrop, industrialized agriculture, and animal husbandry 
threatens to cascade into crop failures, soaring prices, and shortages. So, you know, again, I'm not trying to rain on anybody's parade here, but there are consequences that we have to be aware of. Rural incomes, which have been falling for decades due to globalization, will actually start rising sharply, fueling a reversal in the long decline of rural communities based on agricultural income. But the soaring cost of essentials will reduce the disposable income of the bottom 90%. That's going to reduce the money we'll have to spend on eating out, on retail shopping and everything, and all the surplus spending that drives cities' economies and tax revenues. Now, the super wealthy, they're going to be just fine, so don't, don't worry about them. But he, he summarizes here at the end, you know, let's put it all together, and, and there's a really wonderful big picture that he puts together. The bottom line is, Corruptions are buying, or corporations, wow, that was an interesting Freudian slip. Corporations are buying thousands of houses for rental income, but once all the stimulus runs out and the excesses of speculation reverse, they're going to find few renters that can actually afford their sky-high rents. And at that point, corporate buyers will become corporate sellers, but they won't find buyers willing or able to pay their asking prices, which are based on bubble pricing rather than reality. So all these swirling currents will affect housing valuations in different places differently. Some areas could see 50% declines while others see 50% increases, regardless of mortgage rates or Fed policy. And what will become most desirable is a low cost of living, security, and livability, which includes community, reduced dependency on long supply chains, and local production of essentials. So maybe you should ask yourself, what am I doing to position myself to that to, to that kind of an outcome this is the brian hyde show